You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. All the girls are complicated. Everyone is precious too, and you might get lucky if you do. Oh, you might get lucky if you do. Find the one that makes you laugh. Find the one that takes your breath where you won't get everything that you want. Oh, but you'll need one to dote upon. Hello, and welcome to episode 109 of the Christian Feminist Podcast. I'm Katie Grubbs, and tonight we're going to be talking about Beth Moore, Owen Strawn, and women in the SBC. With me tonight are Alexis Neal and Blake Miller. Hi. Hey there. Hey. Um, we're going to introduce ourselves quickly and then jump right into um, this really complicated topic. So, Alexis, why don't you start? Sure. Uh, my name is Alexis Neal, and I live in southern Missouri with my husband, Coyle, of the City of Man podcast, um, also within the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Um, I mostly spend my time taking care of our two little boys and just beginning to dip my toe into the waters of homeschooling this year. Um, but uh, I also do teach some uh, at Southwest Baptist University as an adjunct. Um, and then I also am involved um, as an elected official for our local government. Um, so that's <clears throat> primarily how uh, I'm spending my time these days. Um, at this point, I'm not going to lie, the, the homeschooling thing is looming much larger than a lot of the other concerns, just because it, it's new and different for me and kind of terrifying. Thanks so much, Blake. How about you? Hey, my name is Blake Miller. I'm in Atlanta, Georgia right now. I got my master's degree in divinity from Abilene Christian University. I was born and raised uh, in the Southern Baptist Convention, but now I'm a reverend in the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship. And I'm uh, endorsed as a hospital chaplain and currently uh, working for a hospital here in Atlanta and, and living with my wife, Ellen. Thanks so much. Blake, which which hospital are you in? I don't think I ever asked you that question. Uh, I'm currently working for Children's Healthcare of Atlanta. Awesome. Cho is so great. We, yeah. um, we've we had occasion to, to, to have contact with Cho when we visited my parents in Atlanta, and our kids have always had a, an awesome experience. Um, I am Katie Grubbs, and I live in Sugarland, Texas, with my husband, David Grubbs, of the Christian Humanist Podcast. I am an adjunct professor of English at Houston Baptist University. Um, for the last few years, I've been completely online, which gives me lots of time to handle the other big thing in my life, which is that um, I am a full-time caretaker for our four kids. And uh, also, I'm very excited because uh, next week starts our, uh, our first week of Ladies Bible Study at our church uh, for the fall, and I'm teaching this semester a class on church history, which I'm really excited about and also fairly intimidated by. I feel like I'm going to be learning a lot uh, alongside, alongside my ladies as I'm preparing to teach them. So I think that's going to be um, very exciting. Um, and um, so we're going to go ahead and start, before we get to our readings for tonight, um, we're going to, uh, I want to just say a quick few quick words about why we chose this topic. Um, in spring of this year, kind of April, May, there was kind of a, a, a tempest in a teapot maybe on Twitter and on some blogs about the role of women um, and I, different beliefs that people have within the SBC even. People don't necessarily agree about women um, preaching or teaching uh, from the pulpit in churches 
um, regardless of whether that's their full-time job or something, just should it even happen at all. And it kind of blew up on Twitter. Um, and as you can tell by the title of this episode, Beth Moore was involved. Also, Owen Strawn, who used to be head of the Council for Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, as well as other male SBC leaders. And so we um, we wanted to kind of give a little bit of attention to this. It kind of all came to a head after we were really kind of done with our spring schedule um, for CFP, which is why we didn't talk about it then. But we're going to talk about it now because it's an ongoing conversation. Um, but before we get to some readings and a little bit of a, a kind of historical timeline of this um, I don't know what you would call it, this fight, I guess. Um, we want to give a little bit of our own personal background, just listeners, so you can understand where we're coming from in our own ideas about these issues. Um, and uh, just a quick disclaimer, um, we're going to try to keep this episode fairly focused, too, on this specific issue um, and these specific uh, people's kind of conversations with each other and about this one particular issue. So we're not, for example, going to be evaluating the quality of Beth Moore's studies or of Owen Strawn's books or whatever. We're, we're going to kind of try to stay focused on this issue. Um, so don't write to us and wonder why we didn't spend the whole episode talking about which Beth Moore study is the best or anything like that. Um, we want to start out by talking a little bit about our personal backgrounds. And so the first kind of question we want to think about is what experiences have we had with women speaking from the front, kind of from the pulpit, on Sunday mornings, specifically in complementarian churches, because obviously women would be present doing that in egalitarian churches. That's kind of um, always going to be true by definition. So we're specifically talking about complementarian churches because that's what we're working with in the SBC. Um, so would you, Alexis, would you like to go first? What have your experiences been in this area? Um, sure. Uh, happy to go first. So I did not grow up Southern Baptist. I've been a Southern Baptist, I guess, for a little over a decade now. Uh, but I did grow up pretty consistently complementarian and therefore was in churches that were at least marginally complementarian. So I've not been uh, a member of a church where a woman served as a teaching elder or as a pastor. So I haven't had that experience, certainly, uh, within the complementarian church. The, the, the churches I have been a part of, I think, have tended to fall into two camps. Uh, one is uh, my church that we attended back in Washington, D.C., which was very thoughtful and very careful and thought about uh, which roles within the church it was appropriate to have women involved in on, based on their interpretation of scripture, um, and, and then worked to actually put women in those roles. Um, so I, I have had experience with churches that have women um, reading scripture from the pulpit, um, that have um, some, under certain circumstances, women praying um, publicly. Uh, the way our church in D.C. made that dividing line was their teaching prayers on Sunday morning, where the prayer was like five to ten minutes, and it really was viewed as a teaching prayer. Those were done by the pastors um, and other qualified men in the church, but the intercessory prayers that were offered by members of the congregation uh, publicly in the evening service, those male and female members of the congregation would offer. So prayer was something um, women, including myself, were involved in leading the musical side of worship uh, as far as singing the songs, but the songs at that church were pre-selected by elders um, in the church, uh, which I think is probably a good policy. And I have a whole other host of thoughts about the way that songs are selected at a church and, and um, leadership's involvement with that. But so that's one, one set of experiences that I've had. Very, very thoughtful, 
you know, working to get women involved in and everything from um, administering the Lord's Supper uh, to actually getting them up and getting them reading the the, um, the scripture passages. The other category I would put sort of all the other churches I've been at into is more of a, well, we know we don't want a woman to be preaching, and that's kind of as much as we're going to think about it. Um, and maybe women will sort of accidentally end up doing other things, but not necessarily because of a clearly thought out or articulated policy, just because it was Sunday morning and the guy who normally leads the singing was not there. So we let a woman lead the service and nobody really thought about it. Um, or we've never had a woman administer communion. So a woman is, women are not allowed to administer communion, even though there's not a clearly articulated policy. So that's kind of been the the two kinds of experiences that I've had. Uh, and, and I think I've, I've certainly responded more positively to the more clearly articulated and supported positions than the churches where there is no policy and therefore you can't really push back against it or have any questions or understand even what the, the expectations are. Um, and that is across denominations. As I said, I've only been a Southern Baptist for about 10 years. Um, and before that other also complementarian churches, um, the, the experience was, was still largely, um, the same. So, uh, yeah. And, and then I guess also if it, if it, if it relates to this or, or not, um, a lot of those was sort of a mixed bag as far as Sunday school, most of them, I think co-ed adult Sunday schools would be taught by, um, qualified men, but, um, but I don't know that that was always the case. Um, thank you so much, Blake. How about you? Right. Um, I was raised in a Southern Baptist uh, convention church, and I can only say basically that I'm 99% sure it didn't allow women to teach and preach for the most part, because as a young boy growing up, I never really felt the need to ask that question, and I really didn't feel any negative effects um, if that was the case, because you know, I just didn't see them. My mother, for example, and for reference, you know, to this day is is fine with going to churches that don't allow women to teach and preach. I do remember actually one time when the pastor, you know, that was there for the first 10 or 12 years of my life and who baptized me um, was diagnosed with cancer. And we had sort of a special service thanking him for all of his work. Multiple women were allowed to come up and share their thoughts or share poems or prayers that they had written for that purpose. And that was an interesting experience that I still carry with me. Um, from there, I went to undergrad at University of Georgia and started going to a, a Church of Christ uh, where it is, generally speaking, um, sure that just going to be a complementarian church and women are definitely not allowed to do that. But I decided to go to seminary and I went to a Church of Christ seminary, Abilene Christian University, um, which is affiliated, like I said, with the Church of Christ denomination, but it's pretty liberal by Church of Christ standards. So everyone teaching me was a full egalitarian. And many of them would sort of shoehorn into places that at the time, especially, I didn't see much of a, a connection to why women should be allowed to teach and preach, because that was um, a huge question that the entire denomination was working on at the time. Um, in fact, I got called out in one of my classes by one of my professors who thought that I was not only complimentarian, but was arrogant or something in general. And so he kind of asked me, called me to the carpet in front of everybody why I would believe in this. And I had to sort of I had to try and argue my position, but the truth was I hadn't given it much thought because of where I'd come from in the Southern Baptist Convention. Of course, again, being a male didn't really affect me much. I don't really know how or when I came to egalitarianism, but over time, you know, I just saw that the Bible moves 
forward in history, giving more and more equality to women to the point where it seems to me that women should have now um, equal rights and there's no reason to prevent it. So in the church I currently attend, which is a cooperative Baptist fellowship church, used to have a female associate pastor until she left for the mission field. And there's really nothing that women can't do in that church. So I, I don't see much of the fight for equal access to the pulpit where I am right now. I've just been uh, in places where people have sort of sectioned them off into the camp of we definitely believe they women shouldn't have that power, or we definitely believe that they should. Thanks, guys. Um, Alexis, I, I really was thinking through when you were talking about, you know, it's it, it's you appreciated more thought, even if the result was the same, you appreciated more thoughtful positions um, and not just this is the way it's always been. And I think... Um, I think that I really appreciate that in part because we've been in, in several different, um, very different complementarian spheres. So I grew up in Southern Baptist churches when I was a kid, my whole life, um, and very, very traditional ones. I don't remember any women um, on staff um, at any of the churches I attended when I was a kid. Um, not even, I mean, when I was, um, when I was in elementary school, even our, um, children's minister, minister was a guy, which, you know, now I feel like it's near ubiquitous for children's ministers to be women. Um, but, uh, for the record, Mr. Steve was awesome. Um, I still remember him. Um, and, uh, and he was great, but, um, so that was, you know, that was not, um, it was definitely not a lot in that church, but I think, um, that particular church was also very strange because it had a very, very powerful kind of old school style, very powerful deacon board that church had no elders only deacons and the deacons acted like elders um and would you know kind of pronounce judgments even on like when it was okay for the pastor the the head pastor to to let someone else fill his pulpit another man like and so that was i i feel like that was a very much an, an abuse of authority though that was nothing to do with gender um and then you know um, when we were in high school, we lived in Arkansas for a while and we were in a Bible church, kind of a non-denominational Bible church. And I don't ever remember hearing any discussion of the roles of men and women. There weren't women on staff in our church, but it was a fairly small staff anyway. And there was never really much talk about what the roles should be between men and women in marriage or really in the church. It was more of that just kind of, we haven't really talked about why we do this, but there aren't any women in charge here. And, and it wasn't really, you know, it, if there was a thought through process, it was not communicated and in, in necessarily clearly in the church. Um, when we, Dave and I lived in Athens, when we were at EGA, we attended PCA churches while we were there. And um, we, uh, and, and we had good experiences there, right? Those were complementarian churches, but, um, and so there weren't ever women preaching the sermon but um, there were definitely women reading scripture. I did it myself um, on multiple occasions. Um, and women praying from the front. Women also helped serve communion in those the two PCA churches we went to at Redeemer and Resurrection. We were in Athens. Um, and uh, so, and that was really positive for me because having grown up in the SBC, um, and part of it is just because, you know, often in the SBC, in our SBC churches, we didn't necessarily have we didn't always have a prayer from the front in every Sunday sermon. And if there was, usually it was the lead pastor. He just, he prayed before he gave his sermon. And so we, there was not much diversity of voices, even amongst men. Often it was, you know, singing happened, which women were participating in. 
but not leading. <laughs> and then the pastor would pray and then he would preach. So it was really interesting um, and illuminating for me to be in a PCA church for a couple of years because I was getting to see church members, not just pastors, church members who are men and women um, being allowed to help serve communion that I mean, you know, or to, um, you know, to stand up and read scripture, to stand up and pray. Um, now, often I do remember, and this was not always the case. Um, usually um, it would be, my husband and I would do it together. So like we would serve communion together or if there were two, like there would always be two, two, like an Old Testament reading and a New Testament reading. Um, they might ask us to read together. So like I would read the Old Testament and he would read the New Testament or whatever. But you didn't have to be, it wasn't like they only, you know, let women get up there who had a husband who was also up there. There were single women who did it. And, you know, so it just, I guess maybe they don't want married couples. They don't want the other one to feel left out or something. <laughs> so they would always ask the two of us. Um, when we were in Kansas, for we, in case you can't tell listeners, we've moved around a lot. Um, when we were in Kansas, we were in a Bible church again. Dave and I were in a Bible church there that was a, a very small church. It was a church plant. And um, I don't remember women doing any of those things in our Kansas church, um, reading scripture um, up at the front or praying. I, I don't remember anything like that. It was pretty much exclusively male um, and that church, again, was non-denominational Bible church, but was very closely affiliated with, um, with the master's college, master's seminary. Um, and now we are in a very interesting church here in, um, in Texas that we actually love. Um, it is, um, I believe, technically a Southern Baptist church. We're part of the convention, um, but it's, it's not on our sign. It's not something that I think is a huge um, point of emphasis for our church. And um, one of the reasons David and I are very much attracted to this church is because this church, while complementarian, gives much greater scope for women doing ministry within our church. Alexis, you were talking about it's one thing to allow women into certain roles, but it's another thing to then pursue them for those roles or appoint them to them. Um, so in our church, for example, and we don't really, it, it's not really happening anymore just because there's not, the deacons in our church are not playing as large of a role as they, as they used to. But when we were searching for churches, we were floored to find a, a Baptist church, a, a Southern Baptist church that had women deacons, which it did. Um, uh, our church has an elder board and the leadership of our church felt like that um, because uh, they, you know, the way they were interpreting the New Testament is deacons are um, playing a serving role, not really a leadership role, that they saw no contradiction between complementary convictions and having female deacons, um, which I think is actually the correct interpretation. Um, so that's something that's happening at our current church. Um, we have women doing various positions of leadership. Our pastor's wife is our women's pastor, but she's also teaching, um, I know this fall, she's teaching a Wednesday night Bible study that's co-ed. Anyone can come to it. It's not just for women. And she's the teacher, the teacher of the class. Um, and it's going to be a, a mixed group. Um, we have had a female worship pastor um, who served full-time alongside our male worship pastor. Um, and we just hired on, she's going to start soon, a student ministry associate who's a woman. So um, I think that, you know, we really enjoy our current church because it is a complementarian church, but it's a complementarian church that is much more about facilitating women doing ministry in the avenues that, you know, our, our church feels are biblically appropriate, not, and, 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 and encouraging them to serve in the church and even to lead in church in ways that, you know, um, are not being our head pastor, but rather than just talking about, well, you can't do this, you figure it out, find a way to minister, you know, you women over there. So, um, it's really been interesting to go from 
environment to environment like that, all complementary and all doing it really very differently. Um, really, the only constant that we've had in all of that is that we've never been in a church with a, a female lead pastor. So um, it's really interesting. Um, and uh, and our current, and I should have said this before, our current church also very much has women um praying from the from the stage on Sunday morning, reading scripture, and um, helping serve communion. All that stuff also happens at our current church. Um, so it's uh, it's been really beautiful. I've 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 really enjoyed it. I felt really encouraged being in our current church. Um, shout out to Grand Parkway Baptist Church. Um, if I just realized I never said the name till now. So um, thanks guys for delving into that background a little bit. It just kind of helps explain where we're coming from. Um, we're going to go ahead, listeners, and move ahead. I wanted to give a quick warning about our reading section tonight. Um, as you know, if you're a long-time listener, usually what we do if we have multiple readings is one person, you know, will summarize a reading, and then we all talk about the reading. And then, you know, somebody else will summarize the next reading, and then we discuss the whole reading, and we kind of do it targeted that way. But tonight, because what we're talking about is basically a feud or an ongoing argument, um, we're going to summarize everything first. So I'm going to give a background on the, the kind of timeline of this of this disagreement. Um, Alexis is going to summarize one article and Blake's going to summarize another article. We're going to do all the summaries first and then we're kind of going to discuss everything together in conversation with each other. Because to me, that's the only way to, that makes sense um, out of this whole kind of um, kerfuffle is the word that I kept using because it feels appropriate. So I'm going to quickly go through and try to give a little bit of a timeline um, for when this whole thing started and what, uh, you know, why is Beth Moore, you know, and these male SBC leaders, what is this kind of conflict that's been happening? So go back in your mind to 2016, if you can. So much has happened um, since then. So Beth Moore has been around for decades, obviously, teaching, um, right, teaching outside the church, doing Bible studies for women, speaking around the country for decades. Um, and she'd always been in the public eye, Though I think probably always women are more familiar with her output with her work than men because she writes for women. That's her passion is to teach the Bible to women. And she'd always been working in the complementarian sphere. Um, you know, she's never really, she's never in the past, never agitated for women being lead pastors or anything like that. Um, but starting around 2016, around fall 2016, she started getting bolder in her, um, in her interactions online. I'll say it that way with the men who were kind of leading um, the, I, I would call it the kind of ideological side of the complementarian sphere. So not like just people who subscribe to complementarian roles, because that's what they've always done, like we mentioned before, but with the, the, the men who think of themselves as the thought leaders of the movement, right? They're the ones writing the books. They're the ones trying to, you know, stump for the theology and all, all that kind of thing. Um, so in fall 2016, um, when the Trump Access Hollywood tape came out, um, Beth Moore had started kind of calling out on Twitter the, the attitudes that she was seeing in the, really the evangelical world at large, um, of dismissal of that kind of locker room talk. Um, and how, and I mean, she's saying very directly, this is wrong. This is, it's not okay to minimize something like this for political gain. Um, and she had never really spoken out about anything like that before. She hadn't, um, you know, tried to call anyone to account for their attitudes or anything like that. Um, and that, you know, so that was new. That was something new. Um, and, you know, it was, um, let me 
let me find my place here. Um, and so for a couple of years, 2016, 2017, she was kind of getting more active, saying more about um, how she feels like it's a it's it's a mistreatment of women, it's a dishonoring of women or disrespecting of women to to act like that the things on that tape are no big deal or that they're worth dismissing to get something that you know a person might want politically to reach a goal. Um, and then in um, on May 3rd, 2018, she penned an open letter and it is it was called it was on her blog and it is called a letter to my brothers. And um, we'll post it listeners in the show notes. And if you haven't already read it, you really should read it um, because it is it is kind of mind blowing. Um, she talks about what her experience has been like being in the Southern Baptist kind of complementary complementarian world throughout her entire ministry and um she you know kind of begins expressing gratitude for a lot of the the male leaders in her life who um were supportive of her but she also talks about how she always felt the need to show pronounced she what she calls pronounced deference to male leaders you know always apologizing always you know uh, giving disclaimers um you know she talks about being in elevators with other male, other leaders who were all male and no one even spoke to her or even sometimes riding in the same car. Nobody says anything to her, you know, and she, she doesn't mention names, you know, but she's just trying to give an idea of, you know, why, um, what kinds of things that she maybe had had to put up with over time that, you know, that lots of women in the church probably put up with and why she felt the need to basically to explain why she felt the need to speak out. Um, when it became clear that, um, that when that tape came out and when other things started happening around that same time, um, like Me Too and Church Too, those movements on Twitter and online, um, she was just completely shocked by the response, um, by a lot of male leaders. And she says, um, and I'll read a quick quote. She says, I accepted the peculiarities accompanying female leadership in the conservative Christian world because I chose to believe that whether or not some of the actions and attitudes seemed godly to me, they were rooted in deep convictions based on passages from 1 Timothy 2 and, and 1 Corinthians 14. Um, and she says, then in uh, early October 2016, attitudes surfaced among some of these Christian leaders that were um, misogynistic or she felt like were objectifying of women. And she said, I came face to face with one of the most demoralizing realizations of my adult life. Scripture was not the reason for the colossal disregard and disrespect of women among many of these men. It was only the excuse. And she says that sin was the reason. So she wrote this letter and it was kind of, I mean, it was kind of a bomb that dropped. There was huge response. Um, Alexis mentioned before we started recording, there was, uh, Thabiti Anyabwile wrote a response letter on the Gospel Coalition website, um, and a lot of people were talking about it. Um, and then in October 2018, there was a really interesting article, um, we'll also link in the show notes, um, at The Atlantic called The Tiny Blonde Bible Teacher Taking on the Evangelical Political Machine. And that was written by Emma Green, uh, October 2018 issue of The Atlantic. Um, and it's kind of just a, f a fascinating, more personal look at um, how Beth Moore was responding to kind of the controversy of the things that she had said. And um, so that's worth taking a look at, listeners. And um, so then things, you know, were kind of um, late fall 2018, early spring 2018, or 2019, not a whole lot happening. And then in April this, of this year, around Mother's Day, things kind of blew up on Twitter. Um, for a seemingly innocuous reason. Um, so Beth Moore, on April 27th, 
she um, had asked on Twitter, what are five things you would do if you could still do what you, if you could still do what you do, but had the margin to pursue other stuff just for fun. And she wrote out her list and it was things like get her pilot's license or whatever, have a talk show. Um, and then she said as an, as an extra, my uh, PS, my original number five was teaching a men's Sunday school class at a church full of Calvinists just to get everybody going. But I deleted it reluctantly. I'm in a tad of a mischievous mood. So this to me reads clearly like a joke, but um, she's, you know, kind of joking about the fact that complementarian men freak out about a woman teaching men. Okay. And then um, she, she had um, a friend of hers who's also a a woman writer at Bible studies um, commented and said, um, that made my day. I'm preaching three services at a Southern Baptist church on mother's day, but like, don't tell anyone. And Beth Moore said, I'm doing Mother's Day too. Let's don't tell anybody about this, right? All this is happening on Twitter for anyone to see. Clearly a joke. Um, And that was like napalm thrown on the fire of uh, any feelings that particular men might have had about her original open letter. Um, And so then then other things start happening. Um, On May 7th, 2019, so, you know, what, 10 days later is uh, the Owen Strawn article that we are going to talk about tonight um, called Divine Order in a Chaotic Age on Women Preaching, where he's responding to Beth Moore specifically by name, but also to J.D. Greer, head of the Southern Baptist Convention. Um, and then on May 11th, um, Beth Moore had another string of, of tweets where she talks about wanting to actually stoke the fire that she's in the middle of because she feels like there's important things to be said. Um, and that that tweet thread is very, 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 very powerful. She starts out talking about how she doesn't think she's, she doesn't um, think that she's has, you know, is a perfect person. And she talks about her daily practice of repentance. And she feels like she's compelled by the Holy Spirit to draw attention to the sexism and misogyny that's rampant, she says, in segments of the SBC, cloaked by piety and bearing the stench of hypocrisy. Um, And it, it's, you know, she, she talks about how there are many godly conservative complementarians um, and she says that uh, she does not ignore First Timothy or First Corinthians, but what she wants is for people to grapple with the entire text from Matthew 1 through Revelation 22 on every matter concerning women. And that above all else, we must search our, uh, the attitudes and practices of Christ Jesus himself toward women and points out that he had women followers um, and that she says she does not see one glimpse of Christ in the sexism uh, that she sees on display. So that was May 11th. Um, and, you know, we can link to that as well. Um if you're the kind of person listeners who likes to be exhaustive and wants to read all of these things. Um, and then the last two items I want to give, and then we'll be done with the whole timeline thing, or sorry, last three items. So then on that same day that Beth Moore wrote this kind of uh, list of tweets about wanting to stoke the fire and really take the opportunity to say some things that she feels like are important. Um, uh, Beth Allison Barr wrote an article that we're also going to talk about tonight. Um, actually, no, the one, um, the one we're going to talk about tonight is from June 12th. Um, on uh, on May 11th, Beth Allison Barr at Patheos, um, she wrote an article called A New Hope for Evangelical Women, specifically about that Beth Moore tweet thread and how she couldn't believe that Beth Moore was, was saying these things um, on Twitter. And she was seeing this as a really hopeful sign, um, which and um, we're going to get some background on Barr later. Um, so then on May 31st of this year, um, there had been a, a, a small second brouhaha where Beth Moore had um, 
pointed out on Twitter that the uh, the SBC did not always have this, that people who say the SBC always had this exact same attitude about women and these exact same uh, complementary beliefs expressed in this way. It's just not true. And she talks about, um, and she linked to a position paper by the leader of uh, Southern Seminary, um, Honeycutt, back in the day, um, who got ousted when the conservative resurgence came in and to a link to his views about women in the pulpit. Um, basically just to point out that, um, you know, it's not always been this way, which I mean, any of those conservative resurgence guys would say, well, yeah, that's why we researched because <laughs> like, we didn't like the way it was going. Um, anyway, so um, when that when that happened, a lot of people online felt like she was actually endorsing women in the pulpit and that she actually kind of posted a retraction and said, you know, oh, I, you know, I didn't really pay attention to everything that he was saying in that piece that I posted. And I just wanted to point out that things weren't always this way. And she kind of backtracked a little bit. And then um, the last item is this Beth, other Beth, Beth Allison Barr article that we're going to talk about tonight um, from June 12th of this year. So the fairly recent past called Because Complementarianism is About Power. Um, and I know that listeners, that was probably kind of annoying all of the endless list of dates, but I just wanted to give some idea of one, the kind of interrelationship between Twitter feuds with the blogosphere so that, you know, it's not just like things that happen on Twitter just stay on Twitter and people just fight it out on Twitter. But so often that stuff spills over into blog posts or websites or, you know, whatever. Um, and people are um, linking to this and that and back and forth. And so it's been a kind of ongoing discussion, like I said, um, definitely this year, but the roots of it, and I think the reason that, that some of these men are reacting so strongly to, you know, jokey tweets by Beth Moore on Twitter that seem clear to me to be jokes is because since about 2016, she's been very boldly speaking out against what she feels like are misogynistic attitudes within the denomination, which by the way, she hasn't repudiated. I mean, she's not saying, I don't wanna be Southern Baptist anymore even she's just you know questioning some of the attitudes happening in the denomination so um that's the kind of facts i guess of the case as best i can marshal them in a way that makes sense so what we're going to do now is um alexis is going to take us through uh, a summary of one of the articles I mentioned that was a, was, was a response to Beth Moore, uh, May 7th, 2019, by Owen Strawn. So why don't you lead us through that, Alexis? Sure. Thanks, Katie. <clears throat> um, so for those who are not uh, active in complementarian or Southern Baptist circles, the name Owen Strand may not be familiar to you. Uh, so just a little bit about him uh, before I get into the piece. Um, Owen Strand is currently uh, a professor, associate professor at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Kansas City. It is one of the, the major Southern Baptist seminaries uh, in the country. I think it is now currently larger than Southern Seminary in Louisville, um, where, um, uh, where the conservative resurgence sort of started uh, back uh, with Al Mohler many, many years ago. Uh, so he currently teaches at Midwestern in Kansas City. Uh, but prior to that, he served as the president of the Council for Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. Uh, so he dealt a, a lot with these issues of complementarianism in that job, uh, both as its president and prior to that, its executive director. Uh, his uh, resume is sort of peppered with a lot of the the respected Southern Baptist names. It's got a lot of the, the big movers and shakers on it. So he has degrees from Southern and uh, has worked for the C CBMW. He's worked for Al Mohler. He uh, was actually um, an intern at the church that uh, my husband and I were members of in Washington, D.C. Although I don't think he was there when we were there. 
Um, he is a research fellow at the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, which is the public policy arm of the Southern Baptist Convention. If you've heard any uh, speaking or written, read anything by Russell Moore, Russell Moore is the head of that organization. And so he has a connection there as well. Um, and then he writes for a bunch of different outlets. Um, it's worth noting that this particular piece we're talking about, though, is not being published in connection with any of those various roles. He has his own blog that is hosted by Pathios, um, and that's where he wrote this piece. So it's not um, something that he penned in sort of official connection with Midwestern. Uh, and I think that's worth noting because one of the roles that he has at Midwestern is the director of the Center for Public Theology. And he's been involved with a lot of these sorts of institutes that camp out at the intersection of culture and theology. Um, so one at uh, Boyce, the undergraduate institution associated with Southern Seminary, um, one at Trinity uh, Evangelical Divinity School, and then one at Midwestern. So uh, clearly, that's kind of where he likes to camp out. Uh, but again, this piece does not appear on the the website for the, the Center for Public Theology. So this is just on his personal uh, Pathios site. Um, so that's a little bit about Strand. And then also, I guess, another piece of information um, that I think we'll talk more about later is when he was the president of the CBMW um, uh, it was it was sort of announced in his uh, appointment uh, uh, press release that he was the youngest president ever appointed there. So he's still a young guy. Um, he's I think 38. So um, he's yeah he's my age, which despite what my kindergartner will tell you is not old. So um, yeah. So anyway, so he's a, he's a fairly young guy. I think that that matters a lot for the context here. Anyway, so on, on May 7th, he wrote this piece called Divine Order in a Chaotic Age, specifically addressing this issue of women preaching from the pulpit. So he's got a lot to say here. He sort of starts out with a miniature biblical theology overview of the theology of gender and complementarian matters, beginning with creation, um, as, uh, as is typical, uh, and then sort of arcing through to the... Um, to the New Testament. Uh, he has a section where he talks about the importance of order and the current cultural resistance to order um, and, and, and that, uh, that idea of, of freedom and, and chaos as opposed to, to order, particularly order ordained by God. Uh, he has a little section that deals with uh, the meaning of manhood and womanhood, um, all of which is pretty, I don't know, I feel like it's pretty uh, standard for a complementarian piece. Uh, and then he moves into a section on men shepherding and instructing the corporate body, where he talks about uh, biblical teaching and and what does uh, specifically what does um, what does it mean to teach the Bible and what kind of teaching of the Bible is permitted, if at all, by women. Um, and his his conclusion is that um, there's no way to gather to to preach to the gathered church in a way that's not authoritative, and therefore, First uh, Timothy two prohibits that in, in in sort of any way. There's no non-authoritative way to address a congregation, which um, Beth Moore in the past, I don't know that she's explicitly mentioned this in this latest string of tweets, um, has has filled the pulpit at various churches um, under the authority of the elders. So you have elders or leadership at that, that church, and they say, hey, we are approving her coming in, and so therefore she is under our authority. She's not preaching in an authoritative way over you. We are in authority, and we're bringing her in. Uh, so that's that's kind of why that matters, is that's sort of the the 
the category that she has seen herself fitting into preaching, but not necessarily as a, as a preacher or as an elder, but someone brought in uh, to teach non-authoritatively. So Strand disagrees that that's a possibility. Um, He says there's no non-authoritative way to preach and teach the Bible because the Bible itself is authoritative. There's no way around that. Um, He, he takes issue uh, and this piece is designed to address Beth Moore's uh, flip comment about um, preaching on Mother's Day, but also he's taking issue with uh, J.D. Greer's uh, piece that um, explains his position. Um, again, to get sort of into the Southern Baptist weeds, J.D. Greer is the current head of the Southern Baptist Convention, so he's not a small figure in this world, uh, and his church has uh, put out a, a piece that uh, we'll link to in the show notes that talks about their view and how they handle it. And it, it, it's a little confusing actually, because I think Greer and, and Strand are not actually disagreeing. And I'm not entirely sure why Strand seems to think that Greer is um, going further uh, than he, than he actually seems to be saying that he is in that piece. Um, and we can talk more about that in a minute, but um Strand is very clear that this is a new a new view. Southern Baptists have never had this view. Um, there's there's no basis for this. Absolutely, absolutely not. Um, women should not be addressing the gathered church in a sermon context. Uh, so then he goes through the 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 list of oh all the wonderful things that women can do and have done Titus two um, other things like that uh, Phoebe things uh, those sorts of mentions um, Priscilla and Aquila. And then he moves on to his big punchline, which is just, hey, by the way, Mother's Day doesn't is not an exception to this. Got another obligatory section on how being a mom is super awesome and important, because of course it is, particularly in complementarian circles, and moves on to his conclusion. Um, so we're going to talk, I don't want to get into the weeds of, of all of what he's saying, because I know we're going to pull this stuff apart a little bit more later, but um, it's really not not necessarily uh, groundbreaking. Like I said, there's there's going to be some problems that we'll talk about, but I don't know that he's he's necessarily doing anything new or exciting in the complementarian world. He's just responding specifically to Moore's tweet and then I think what is a misreading of Greer's um, post on his church's website. Um, so that's my summary, <laughs> sort of brief summary of uh, of the Strand piece and his his posture in the the denomination. Thank you so much. That was awesome. Um, yeah, it's it's kind of a he talks about a whole lot of different stuff in that fairly, you know, fairly short piece. And so it's a lot to try to cover. Um, OK, so we're going to we're going to hold our thoughts about his his stuff for a moment. And we're going to go ahead and talk about the other piece, too, just so we, we've kind of hit everything. So, Blake, why don't you walk us through Barr's article? All right. Um, I'll start off with a short biography that I clipped mostly uh, from her uh, personal website. So Beth Allison Barr received her BA from Baylor University and an MA and PhD in medieval history from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Her research focuses primarily on women and gender identity in the late medieval England and how Protestantism affected women in Christianity. She's the author of a book called The Pastoral Care of Women in Late Medieval in late medieval England, co-editor of the Acts of the Apostles, Four Centuries of Baptist Interpretation, and our 
author of more than a dozen articles. She's also a contributor to a blog, The Anxious Bench, which is where we get the article we're about to go into, um, which is a religious history blog on Patheos. And uh, she's also contributed to Christianity Today and The Washington Post. So the title of this article is Because Complementarianism is About Power. And she begins it by talking about where she was when she heard that Rachel Held Evans had died. Um, she talks about the loss of Rachel Held Evans, obviously her being a well-known female Christian rabble-rouser basically in um, – the blogosphere and in Christian circles who for many people talked about, uh, you know, how any given thing she disliked was not Christ-like or not Christian. And for other people was giving voice to all kinds of fresh ideas or the, the real, you know, problems and questions and doubts that people, particularly women face in the Christian faith and in American Christendom. Um, and she moved on from that to talking about how Beth Moore, noted public speaker and member of the SBC, tweeted out an article written by Mr. Roy Honeycutt, like we previously discussed, from Southern Seminary, who articulated why that seminary advocated for women being allowed to preach. And she notes that many um, men in the SBC lambasted this choice on Twitter. Um, and so the next day, Moore's original tweet was deleted, and she affirmed her position as a soft complementarian herself, and the men all gave these sort of audible sighs of relief. So Barr moves in to uh, what she calls a linguistic analysis of Beth Moore's open letter and Owen uh, Strawn's Patheos blog, along with the tweets from the five biggest discussion, the five biggest voices in this discussions. So what she did was she um, took, on one hand, Beth Moore's tweets and her open letter and put them into um, this online uh, digital text visual analysis tool called Voyant and sort of created a word cloud of what comes up most often, which words were most often used when Beth Moore talked about her position on this issue. And then on the other hand, she took um, these men, four different men, uh, and what they wrote, especially Mr. Owen Strawn, put those into a separate word cloud. And it comes out, I'll just, uh, I'll quote her and I'll stop quoting her when she's given the top six um, words. So she says, the most common words used by Beth Moore are Christ, love, attitudes, accepted, serve, and respect. And now quoting again, the most common words used by Strawn and his ilk are church, teaching, word, order, headship, and authority. And so she argues that Moore talks about Jesus and love, and Strawn and the other men are talking about headship and authority. So Moore is offering this more sympathetic, um, more open-hearted view, whereas these men are ascribing to patriarchy, which she claims is all about power, and uh, the SBC complementarianism is not consistent with the ethics and teachings of Jesus. She ends by saying... 
calling patriarchy complementarianism doesn't make it Christian. It just makes it patriarchy with a new name. Um, going on, she says, I think Beth Moore's tweet is rather insightful. Don't be deceived if it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck. And then she says for herself, it probably is a duck. Complementarianism is just patriarchy, and patriarchy is about power. Neither is about Jesus. Awesome. Thanks. Um very different. I like these. I like these two pieces together because they're totally different. Um, Strawn has this kind of, you know, far-reaching. I want to talk about, you know, the, the the biblical basis for these things, and he's, you know, kind of making pronouncements. And hers is very, very targeted, and you know, um, with this kind of very specific linguistic analysis. Um, so we're going to kind of talk through some of these issues. And the first question. Um, that I think would be a great starter for us in our discussion is why do we think, why does Beth Moore seem to touch such a nerve with these leading SBC men? Well, I think she speaks from a, a position of power um, and it's kind of a unique position that she's in. Uh, she has been teaching women for more than 40 years. Um, and I think if, if most of us in the Baptist world, or even just the lowercase b Baptist, like non-denominational world, if you were to talk to the women in your churches, I think the number of women who've had some kind of interaction with Beth Moore and done one of her studies and and been impacted by her would not be a small number. Um, so she has a, a, a potential for a, a profound influence um, on the women in complementarian churches specifically. Um, and there there are more voices out there now, but for a long time, she was kind of the only game in town. Uh, and so if you did a commercially available study, you probably were doing a Beth Moore study if you were doing one targeted at women. I mean, you could, you could do one of the other ones as well. But if you were talking about one targeted at women, it was going to be Beth Moore. And so as a result, she does have that potential for influence. And so I think... Um, there's a concern that someone with that kind of influence, um, yeah, that the, the, the results of her tweets, um, they just have, they have the, the potential to profoundly influence uh, a lot of individuals in, uh, in the SBC and in, in uh, complementarian churches. Yeah, and I think, too, there seems to be, and I mean, I think this is generally true, maybe of human nature, but I think I see it particularly in this situation that um, they seem to be that much more bothered by Beth Moore raising objections to certain um, attitudes that she sees happening in the complementarian church. I, I think they almost get it's they almost get more upset because she's within right it's not like she's a, a secular feminist or even that like she's on the egalitarian side and kind of you know lobbing criticisms from what they would feel like would be the opposing camp she's in the camp she's she's identifying as complementarian and, and always has and yet she's saying these really really bold pointed things about problems that she feels like she sees within her own environment and it, i almost feel like that the there's maybe like a sense of betrayal a little bit um, particularly because, as she says in her own letter, she spent so long being so deferential and, you know, being so um, inoffensive, I'll say it that way, to um, to powerful men within the denomination. I think that that is part of it, too. I think that's one reason they react so vehemently is because, as you said, Alexis, she has so much power, but also because she's coming from within. And maybe that seems even more dangerous. I don't know. What do you think, Blake? 
as a guy, I'm, I'm not really as exposed to Beth Moore as most people are. You know, I, I don't find myself being offered the opportunity to go to, to do a Beth Moore study, you know, in the men's groups that I've been a part of and stuff like that. So I know that I have a different way of answering that question. But if I put myself in the mindset of a of a man who has very complementarian views and doesn't want women to challenge that, I can see Beth Moore as somebody who has spent, like we've said, decades talking to a specific subset of the the Southern Baptist Convention, you know, and the church even beyond that community, and as some might call it, a subset with less power in the church. And if I thought that she might you know, decide to tell these people who have whose trust she has earned over this time that they need to start asking some really tough questions or or making a a grab at power. I could understand that it would be very difficult for me or for other you know men in the in the Southern Baptist Convention who maybe have been ignoring this this group uh, to sort of make a good counter argument. And so, to a certain extent, she almost poses a very existential threat, almost like uh, some kind of you know weapon held in reserve. She has power, and even if she doesn't want to use it. Um, a man who 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 wants to keep complementarianism or, or keep women, you know, out of certain roles, I could understand how any of them would be uh, frightened of the of what she could do if she wanted to to make a play. <laughs> that makes perfect sense, um, particularly when you think about some of these guys. Like Strawn is is all hot about it and he's posting and he's really upset and throwing his weight around but like Alexis said he's not even 40 yet and so you know Beth Moore could you know very easily kind of if she wanted to be very dismissive and and she says in her open letter she talks about being kind of condescended to by male seminary students and kind of thinking to herself that she was getting up before dawn and reading scripture when they were still in their pull-ups is how she says it um and so you know i think that there's there's some of that there too you know they can't it's it's she's even a little more difficult to dismiss because she's not a young woman right she's you know she's put in the time you know she's been spending decades she spent decades studying um, the scriptures let's go ahead and talk about strawn um and alexis you mentioned being confused because he's he says he's disagreeing with greer and you it doesn't look like they're disagreeing so do do we feel like do you feel like he's misrepresenting greer's point of view or misunderstanding it i hope he's misunderstanding um i'm misunderstanding it i i don't i don't have any reason to think that he's being disingenuous here he seems genuinely concerned about um, what he's seeing, but uh, looking at Greer's piece, uh, Greer seems to be taking uh, his 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 uh, conclusions seem to be largely similar to Strand's. Uh, the one anecdote he shares where a woman was in, invited up uh, to. Um, I don't even know that it was the pulpit. It sounds like it was a seated, they were both seated. It was it was Greer and Elise Fitzpatrick, who is a, a well-known author um, and counselor. Um, and he did an interview with her. I think it was him. He was actually the elder doing the interview, but an, an elder of the church did an interview with her um, up front. And, and that is an example that he gives. And he says, you know, in this context, the elder being there made it clear that like the elder was was the one with authority and that she was not one with authority. And I couldn't tell from the article if that was like in place of a sermon on a Sunday morning, if that was at a Sunday evening service or, or what exactly it was, because he also said, we do not let, we don't have women preach the sermon. Um, so that sounded like a, a kind of a one-off and not a sermon. And I, 
might have issues with whether or not that's a great plan to have maybe instead of a sermon and to have an interview instead. Like I would have other questions about that that have nothing to do with the complementarian discussion. Um, but that's not having a woman like that's that's not that different from having a woman give her testimony prior to baptism, like a that sort of Q&A discussion. Um, so at no point in that article is he saying women should be allowed to preach. He doesn't say that. He he does, however, go through and say his understanding, I guess, of what it means to teach with authority um, is is a little bit more narrow um, than what Strand... So Strand has that statement that's like, there is no way to teach about the Bible that's not authoritative because the Bible is authoritative. So when you teach it, you're teaching authoritatively, which I have lots of questions about because that seems like a patently false statement. But... Um, but that's not what Greer, that's not how Greer sees that particular passage. So he he goes through and says, well, what does it mean to teach with authority? Um, is that different from just teaching? And he says, it can't mean all teaching because um, that would mean you can't make comments in a Sunday school class in discussion because someone might learn something from it. Um, and you can't give your testimony and you can't read a book by a woman because she's teaching about the Bible. And if all teaching about the Bible is authoritative, then guess what? You can't read anything by Elizabeth Elliot or whatever. Um, and it also, he thinks it can't mean just the sermon. Greer thinks this. It can't just mean the sermon because that's, the word sermon is not really in scripture. It's not clearly defined. And you'd have to try and decide when a testimony becomes a sermon, when a reflection during the musical portion of the service, like a reflection between songs, when that becomes a sermon, all of that. So what he has settled on for their church is um, teaching with authority means the kind of teaching only an elder can do. So you basically that that passage is saying women, not only can women not be elders, but they can't act like elders without being elders. So they can't just then go do all of the elder stuff. So you can't get around that by saying, well, we won't make them formal elders. We'll just make them functional elders. And he's saying, well, that's that's what this passage is saying, uh, which is not necessarily, again, at odds with Strand, other than that Strand seems to want this broader pronouncement on all teaching of the Bible, which, again, he clearly doesn't can't. I, I don't think he means it. Maybe he does, in which case, again, I think I would have questions about that. But. Uh, yeah, so so he seems to be pushing back on this, but but Greer does not seem to be actually pushing for a woman in the pulpit. He seems to be trying to have a nuanced view of this passage, but it still precludes a woman giving the sermon on a Sunday, uh, which is precisely the issue Strand's pushing back against. So I'm not entirely sure why he thinks he needs to pick a fight with the president of the SBC, but he seems like that's what to think that's what he needs to do. Particularly when he's not even saying, I take an issue with Greer saying there are gray areas. Right. He says that Greer is endorsing a woman teaching and preaching to the corporate body, which he's not. <laughs> to me, it seems clear that he's not. You're right. And I um, yeah, my issue with Greer, not Greer, my issue with um, with Strawn, Strand, Strawn. I'm never sure how to say it. Um, uh, he says it rhymes I, with man. So it's Strand. Well, I'm sorry, Owen Strand, that I pronounced <laughs> it Strawn earlier. I used to until David correct or until David tried to help me. I used to say straight chan. So I've gotten better. Um, thank you for helping yeah. me, Alexis. Um, I, my issue with him as a teacher of rhetoric is that his argument is not very well constructed. So the way that he, he will make one announcement and then he will make another announcement and he won't and he won't make it totally clear how those two things are connected. So, for example, in the passage you're talking about, Alexis, he says um, when you're talking about authoritative teaching versus non-authoritative teaching, he says first he says, if we take the Bible at its word, then we recognize that there is no way for a woman to instruct the gathered church. 
um, whether in an authoritative or non-authoritative way, congregational preaching and teaching is, is authoritative for the word of God is authoritative. Okay. So that seems like he's identifying congregational preaching and teaching, like right. being the person. Yes. Yep. But then the very next sentence says there yep. is no non-authoritative way to preach and teach the Bible. Period. So yeah, outside of the congregational so, setting, like any. So which is it? Like, I mean, is it if either it's just sloppy and he still means congregational, or he's serious that he means there's nowhere that he feels like, and 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 if he's serious about there's no non-authoritative way to preach and teach the Bible, so women shouldn't do it. Then I would love to know if he's teaching children Sunday school at his church, because if it's okay for women to teach the children scripture, then but it's somehow not okay for them to teach even other women, or you know what I mean. Either either it's there's no if he says there's no non-authoritative way to to teach the Bible if. If he really believes that's true, women won't even be teaching children in his church. And I highly doubt that's what's happening. Well, to be like, fair, right, the, the verse he's looking to there, and I don't think he cites it there, but he's still looking to that First Timothy 2, which is authorita- to have teaching of authority over a man. So you could say that it's authoritative, but that authoritative teaching to other women or authoritative teaching to children is not prohibited by the First Timothy passage. That just prohibits authoritative teaching over a man so there there is a way that he could have a work around that with that even within his um his particular view but it's going to mean at no point can a woman teach the bible to an adult male under any settings um and that means again books seminary um bible college classes adult sunday school classes um and again as i was listening to a podcast um the nine mark a nine marks podcast on this issue uh, and and the pa- uh, pastor mark dever was saying like so what happens when my wife teaches me something like when we're discussing the bible and i learn from her <laughs> um right so which he was like, and that happens all the time. So um, so, yeah, so I think I think there are issues with making this all teaching of the word is necessarily authoritative. Um, and there's another um, good podcast on this that we can put a link to in the show notes, uh, the Village Churches podcast, Knowing Faith, um, which Jen Wilkin is a participant there. And I think her name will come up again in our discussion. Um, uh, but one of the participants in that podcast points out that if we say that all teaching of the Bible is authoritative in this sort of expansive way, we can end up diminishing the importance of the preached word on on Sunday mornings, like the gathered body, the significance of the ordinance of the the sharing of the word, and that, that we diminish the value of that if we say that's just like sitting in a seminary class, that it's all the same amount of authoritative. One of the effects of that is going to be to bring down the importance of what is happening in in your in your church body on a Sunday morning, but again, as you said, he may it may be that he's just not being clear, but he's continuing to want to push in only on congregational worship, uh, which then I would I would want to have a different conversation. So, but the way he's phrasing it sounds like he is broadening it beyond the gathering of the church, the local church, um, which then you're talking about the probably the teaching time or the sermon, as opposed to just anywhere, including seminary or Sunday school or whatever. Well, I have a few other things, but before I do, I, Blake, what do you think about this article? <laughs> because we've just been going on. Sure. Um, I, I appreciate that he is appealing to passages of scripture. He's not just sort of uh, seeming to pull things out ex nihilo. And he is, it seems to me, doing um, what he thinks is a good faith interpretation of the scripture. But there are just places where, you know, we've, we've talked um, – about you know what is authority, and that means that we're having to sort of almost split 
hairs and atoms about when, when is something authoritative and when is it not between you know teaching children and if a wife accidentally <laughs> educates her husband. That's obviously one problem we run into. What really struck me in uh, this this blog post is he he mentions Beth Moore and J.D. Greer are two popular Southern Baptist voices, and I was surprised to see these two figures endorse a woman teaching and preaching. He says this, this was new to me. Southern Baptists have never embraced such a view. And I was really surprised by that because I happen to know just a little bit about, you know, the Southern Baptist history. In the late 80s, there was a burgeoning sort of moderate movement within the Southern Baptist Convention that was really asking questions about, uh, among other things, can women preach? Um, and, and, and are we understanding things a little bit better these days to allow them to do that? And it came to the point where a large quantity of, of these, uh, this sort of voting block, if you will, in the SBC thought that an upcoming uh, election of the new president of the SBC was really going to decide the future. Did they move into a moderate position or did they just really take a hard conservative tack? And so this voting block um, put forward a man named Dr. Daniel Vestal to be a potent, the potential new president, and he lost that um, election. So the SBC sort of continued in its right wing, you know, conservative line, and many of those uh, people left to form a new sort of denomination. The reason I know that is that denomination is the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, the one that ordained me as a reverend, and Daniel Vestal is my lead pastor. So the I, it really wow. it stopped me in my tracks when I read that um, because. I know for a fact that there are a lot of at least former Southern Baptists from 20 or 30 years ago who really did embrace a view that women can lead. Um, and you guys kicked them out, I want to say. Uh, so right. And I think that. I think that also like puts a, the the round of tweets or Beth Moore's tweet on May 31st into a lot of context because now it's not just her digging up this piece by Honeycutt and being like, hey, let me throw this bombshell out out of nowhere. Like Strand is making this point in this piece that this is unprecedented in the history of the Southern Baptist Convention. And so now, well, now what you have is on May 31st, Beth Moore saying, hey, here's someone within the Southern Baptist Convention who was articulating this view. So maybe it's not as unprecedented as you're, as you're claiming. And, exactly. and, and I mean, I, I'm within, still within the, you know, the Southern Baptist church, but I, I do acknowledge that that's part of the history. There was like, there was a, a, an open question of which way the convention was going to go and it shifted and went more conservative. Um, and that's, I mean, that's, that's just a, historical fact and we can look back at at um at uh al moeller's tenure at southern and and the effects of all of that and whether you think that was a good movement or a bad movement it is clearly a movement and a shift uh and and more tried to explain that and put her tweet in context saying look my point was uh and i think even her initial tweet even said this like that the denomination has changed over time um, and so the 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 attempt to paint the, the the denomination the convention as this you know constantly only one view with no dissenting voices isn't isn't technically accurate, um, which is a separate question from whether or not you know the 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 position that it has now has merit. Um, so I think I think that is an important thing to think about with with the context of her her May thirty first tweet of the position paper or the the article by Honeycutt. 
Um, and I think, you know, we talked about, and this is another place where it's difficult to tell whether he is uninformed or being disingenuous. Like, you know, surely he cannot be ignorant of that history. And um, on the other the other item where we were trying to figure out if he was misrepresenting Greer or misunderstanding him or whatever. Um, and or, you know, is he is he trying to say that there's no not, you know, there's no uh, non-authoritative way to teach the Bible just on Sunday mornings or throughout the church? I think you can kind of tell how he feels about that by looking at the rest of the article. Because what he, as you get down further down, he talks about what type of teaching older women should offer young women. Um, and if, you know, if we are interpreting him as just saying, you know, that the, the congregational preaching and teaching with authority is not okay for women, then really it should be fine for women to teach other women scripture and things like that. But he says further down in the article, the teaching older women should offer young women, according to Paul, is discipleship focused. Um, this teaching is targeted teaching. It is oriented around godly character, godly marriage, godly mothering, and godly homemaking. The older woman in view here is not explicitly called to provide doctrinal shepherding, nor to form ministries beyond the church. Um, they're called in Paul's own words to offer younger women counsel and help and wisdom as these younger women respond to God's call to make a family and make a home. So he's, he, I mean, he's literally saying older women shouldn't be teaching younger women doctrine because they're not explicitly called to do it, which when I, I read that part out loud to David and he said, well, wait, hold on a second. So does that mean that older men shouldn't be teaching younger men doctrine because they're not explicitly told to do it? That feels disingenuous to say because women aren't explicitly called to provide doctrinal shepherding for younger women, they really shouldn't talk about doctrine. They should talk about all these other things. But how can you talk about godly marriage, godly mothering, whatever on the list without talking about doctrine? It, you, you can't. It doesn't even make sense. Um, also, I feel compelled to point out, I found this out this week and I, it kind of, it was really interesting to me, though perhaps it shouldn't be surprising because he's still young and he's early in his career, but he's definitely evolved his position over time. Um, so he said in the bit I just read that women are not called to form ministries beyond the church. So, you know, that's in, in, in a vaguely negative way, he seems to be saying this is not, women shouldn't be about the business of forming ministries beyond the church, which feels a little bit like a dig, a dig at Beth Moore. Well, in my course of going down a, a, you know, Owen Strand rabbit hole, I found another article of his from almost 10 years ago, um, uh, from July 1st, 2010, called The Genesis of Gender and Ecclesial Womanhood. And um, in this article where he also kind of, he goes even more in depth into the scriptural basis for the things that he's laying out, um, specific biblical women, what they did, you know, um, he, uh, which by the way, in the course of that list, he gets into one of my, um, one of my, and I say this in a really sarcastic way, one of my favorite complementarian to me fallacies or misrepresentations of scripture, which is the uh, continuing uh, characterization of women like, um, like Ruth and Esther as somehow being submissive to the men around them, which really doesn't make much sense. Especially not um, Esther. <laughs> especially not Esther, unless you're talking about Mordecai. I mean, Mordecai told her to do it. But like, um, he also talks about Moses' mother, guys, as working in a spirit of submission while she breaks the law by putting her baby in a basket. And I, just, I can't. But um, in that article, he explicitly says in one of his footnotes, though, he says... Beyond the local church, the people of God need godly women to follow in the line of extra-congregational teachers, such as Elizabeth Elliot, Nancy Lee DeMoss, Carolyn Mahaney, Mary Cashin. He, like, lists one. Tellingly, he does not list Beth Moore, but, you know, that's, maybe he just didn't think about her. But, so, if in 2010 he's saying that, that it's really needed for women to form, you know, 
ministries outside the church. But now in 2019, he's saying, you know, really women are supposed to be, older women are supposed to be in the church telling younger women how to be good wives and mothers and mommies. And really they're not explicitly called to form ministries beyond the church. It seems like over time, his, his view of what women should or can be doing has gotten smaller and smaller and smaller. And maybe, I mean, maybe that's unfair. Maybe it's not really fair to take two things he said 10 years apart, which, you know, on the same topic and say, well, you know, he's flip-flopped or whatever. I don't know. Maybe he has, you know, thoughtfully changed his position. But it, it I just, I found it really interesting to see how the same, how he specifically, the same person was talking about it slightly differently 10 years ago, particularly when he's trying to say, it's always been this way. This is how we've always felt. I don't know. I thought that was interesting. One of the things that I think is challenging here, and and again, I want to make sure that I'm being fair, but the, the way that he writes reminds me of the way I've seen some people write who are used to only speaking either to people who agree with them or to people that they have decided to view as their opponents um, that are not used to trying to speak to someone who is maybe undecided um, in a in a winsome nuanced way um and so uh which is uh, is interesting because he, he does seem to value the idea of being winsome in your writing i think he seems to be more in his actual writing more matter of fact uh, and i think maybe even so used to talking about this that he doesn't realize how it might read to someone who doesn't already know all of the terminology and all of the history and all of the context and can gloss over some of the rougher transitions between topics. And to be fair, I don't know that his audience is the person who hasn't been exposed to these issues as much. I don't think he's necessarily trying to write to people who think that women ought to be preaching. And I don't think he's even trying to write to people who are undecided. I think part of, as we talked about, part of the the issue here is he sees this as a potential internal rift that he's trying to prevent. And so he's trying to talk to people that he already sees as being on his side. Um, and he wants to shore that up and say, hey, no, 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 this is, you know, hold the line, this is accurate. So I think some of the total issues that I have may be a function of the way that he perceives his audience and who he's trying to talk to. Um, but there is, there is certainly a lack of articulated empathy uh, he may very well have a lot of empathy for Beth Moore and the the experiences that she shared about in her open letter, but he does not express those the way he writes. Um, he doesn't talk about the difficulties uh, inherent in being part of a complementarian congregation. He does talk about how good it is for women. And I do think as someone who's complementarian, I do think it is good for women, but that doesn't mean I don't think that there has been damage done by sinful men who have been the ones in leadership because by definition they all are. And some of them have been really, really bad news. Um, so I think, you know, he, he just does not seem to, to feel the need, at least in this piece. And I'm not really sure in anything else of his that I've read to, to address, um, the hardships and the challenges of women within these churches and their experiences. Uh, and and Moore talks about this some um, in, in her open letter. As I said, uh, Jen Wilkin has talked about this before, that she's only ever wanted to teach women and that she's gotten repeated pushback and had to really work to be allowed to teach women. She's never wanted to teach a mixed uh, congregation. She's never wanted to be uh, in the pulpit uh, in, in the sense of being a pastor, uh, but she got pushback and had to work really hard to, to get through and be able to do that. And she is a, an excellent voice, I think, to look at in this conversation because she has the experience um, and 
like Moore, has chosen to stay in the Southern Baptist Convention despite uh, being someone who's gifted as a teacher and passionate about teaching, and who's found ways to explore that that are consistent with her complementarian theology. Um, but I, I just I think that if we're going to talk about trying to be winsome in this conversation, it starts with helping people feel heard. Because I think if people feel heard, then you you build their trust, and if they trust you, then they'll listen to you. And if you skip over all of that, then you don't have that same position of trust. So I think this ends up being kind of an echo chamber piece where the people who already are on team CBMW are going to be like, yeah, tell them Owen. And I think that that's some of the comments that you see on this piece. Uh, but I, I wonder if that means it doesn't actually accomplish what he's hoping to accomplish if it alienates or, or just doesn't win over um, the, the people who might be most receptive to some of the comments and some of the direction that we're seeing um, Beth Moore's tweets and, and maybe some other um other voices in the in the, the denomination go. So I, I, I think a lot of my concerns have to do with the tone and the way that it's presented and the, the absence of those kinds of considerations. And I wonder how much of that is because he's a he's a young guy and he's I think he writes like someone who is young. And I know he's been doing this for probably about 10 years now. But I wonder if he's the best person to write a piece like this. Um, not that you're not allowed to have an opinion if you're young, but does he need to be the one who speaks into this moment? Should it be someone who is uh, older and has served longer and has the wisdom of years? Should it be someone who's actually been a pastor? As far as I know, Strand has not served as a, a pastor. Should it um, should it be someone even like Jen Wilkin? Although I don't know that she wants to touch this particular issue directly. I will I just, say, if I might, about yeah. Jen Wilkin, um, I was a part of a men's uh, Bible study group uh, once, and we couldn't decide what we wanted to do. And I went online, and I found this interesting study on the book of Judges by this woman named Jen Wilkin. And uh, these this group of about 10 or 12 men did a one or two month long study on the book of Judges that this woman wrote. So it's funny to me to even hear her say that she never wanted to teach men. How do you stop that from happening if you put the your you know your studies out online where somebody like me can get them? It's kind of like pouring water trying to carry it in a wicker basket or something. It's going to bleed out. And so I kind of feel sympathy for these men who want to cordon off and herd cats, so to speak, to make sure that no accidental authority gets conferred upon these women. Because Jen Wilkin taught me things about judges I never knew. Yeah, and her lectures on the Book of Judges are phenomenal. I've listened to, I haven't done the study, but I've listened through the lectures, and they are, they're, they're incredible. She's, uh, we've done several studies at our church, um, and, um, and I have wonderful experiences with those. And I mean, anytime you have published works, yes, there's certainly, and that's one of the issues with a view that, like it seems like Strayan has in this uh, piece, um, is yeah, you, you you're gonna if you read a book by Elizabeth Elliot, you're gonna learn something. If you do a Jen Wilkins study, you're you're gonna be learning from her as well. Um, but yeah, I, I do wonder. There is a part of me that wonders when you when you see something like this. Why do you think that you need to be the one to speak into it as someone who Beth Moore has literally been teaching people longer than you've been alive, um, and maybe you have issues with how she's doing it and how good of a job she does, and that's a separate issue that we're not talking about. But do you really think that it needs to be you um, now? He has been the president of the CBMW. He has been an executive director there. He works at the Center for Public Theology, and he's worked at a lot of institutes. So maybe that is a legitimate conclusion to think it needs to be him. But I, I definitely, that was one of my questions, was why why do we need to know what Owen Strand says about this issue? Is there a better voice 
to have this conversation and maybe someone who with that wisdom of years would be more careful and empathetic and and just yeah, just just more winsome in the way that they talk about it, because uh, I I did not feel that this piece was particularly winsome. Well, let's um let's let's actually let's talk about the bar piece because that's one of the things that she talks about is she has this this focus on words, right? The words that are chosen, like you know you're 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 thinking through things about Strawn, you know, and and is it is is one of the biggest issues how he's saying what he's saying, and I think it is. Um, so let let me get your reactions when you when you read this, which I'll say really quickly, listeners, this piece by Beth Allison Barr in part is great because before she gets to the textual analysis, she gives a really great concise rundown of a lot of the stuff that I mentioned earlier about the Twitter feuds and who who was you know criticizing her on Twitter it wasn't just Owen Strawn it was also people like Al Mohler and Denny Burke and all these other people so um, you know read it for that alone but um, what did you guys think about her article um, her her kind of criticisms or or the whole um, you know efficacy of something like textual analysis for this purpose Alexis I, I think you should go first on this if you don't mind Sure. Um, well, I went through, I was looking at her list of words, um, and the first thing that struck me with her word clouds that she generated is that a lot of the words that she is most critical of being in the uh, Strand and Company word cloud uh, are words that are actually in the texts that he is purporting to exegete. So uh, words like authority and teach are in 1 Timothy 2. Words like order, church, and word are in 1 Corinthians 14. So I had a hard time judging or condemning or, or having any negative feelings about the fact that they were concentrating on these words that appear in the text themselves that they are trying to exposit. Um, and then on the flip side, she is clearly very impressed by the words that, that Moore is concentrating on, Christ, love, attitudes accepted. But some of these words are not words that appear in the Bible at all, like misogyny and sexism. Um, and so if you wanted to do a less charitable interpretation of these word clouds, you could talk about how Beth Moore is going extra biblical and then her arguments are all based on experience. Um, now, I don't think that that dismisses her arguments at all because I don't think her point is uh, what does 1 Timothy 2 mean or what does 1 Corinthians 14 mean? That's not what she's talking about. She's talking about her experience. So it makes sense that she would use words that reflect that. So the fact that I'm is, you know, the biggest word I think on the page um, doesn't necessarily mean that she's being selfish uh, or that she only cares about her own experience. She's telling about her experience and that's going to affect the words that she uses. So I think to some degree it's an apples and oranges issue. And then again, the words that she's taking issue with are words that are in the text. And so I, I would maybe say, be careful because it sounds like what you're taking issue with is the text, which is not going to be a particularly effective argument in, in talking to someone who who wants to um, exposit and understand and apply that text accurately. I agree. I was a little worried coming into this tonight, uh, this discussion, because I, I, I can sympathize with her desire not to see, you know, misogyny fall under a cloak of, you know, quoting scriptures in strategic ways or anything like that. But I really thought that... Um, when I heard linguistic analysis, really, before I uh, read the piece, I was wondering exactly what that would look like. And I, I really was surprised um, to see it used in this way. I kind of would consider this kind of unscientific, if that word would suffice. Um, 
even to say, you know, putting the words that she says Beth Moore uses, like Christ and love, against the words that the men use, church and teaching. Well, I'm, I'm a, I'm, I feel positively about Christ and love, but I don't feel negatively about church and teaching. You know, I'm okay with that too. I like all four of those things. And uh, honestly, the thing that it reminded me of was this old movie Bowfinger, uh, starring Eddie Murphy and Steve Martin, where Eddie Murphy plays this sort of movie star with a, a huge kind of ego and he reads a script and gets really mad at it. And he says the letter K is in this script 1456 times. And that's perfectly divisible by three. And you know what that means? That means that KKK is in this script 486 times. And I thought that that kind of is similar to me um, as sort of a, a way of missing the point or, you know, really lasering in on something that doesn't actually serve your purposes. Um, and I kind of thought that she shot herself in the foot in the foot by, by using this particular attack. I think one of my issues with it too, is that it, it really feels a little bit. Um, I don't think the word is unfair, but it, it feels like a mismatch to compare on the one hand, the words of one person with the words of a group of people on the other hand. You know, I mean, it, to me, it would make more sense to compare more to one of these guys or but to, to group them all together. Um, it, it just it, it, it feels like uh, the kind of uh, this is ridiculous because we're talking about, you know, list of words, but it feels an unscientific comparison. Um, you're not putting like with like. Right. You're not comparing one person to one other person. You're comparing Beth Moore to all of these men. Um, and, you know. I think it might actually be more revealing to look at the words of Beth Moore as compared to the words of these men on ideas about gender, but to do that with texts that weren't written in the heat of an argument, because people are always going to be, you know, more um, intense. They're going to be, you know, in this case, like you guys were talking about, they're bringing in text. These men are bringing in text that includes these words. But of course, they're talking about headship and authority and all these kinds of things, because this is what they're talking about. They're trying to, you know, put forth these ideas. And she's, you know, probably going to be talking more about, you know, Christ and love and feeling accepted, because these are things that she's looking for. For women she's looking for women to feel accepted in the church to feel respected that was another one of her big words you know so she's using these words um in a in a, in a pointed way to to try to you know advocate for something so I, it's not the best um comparison i think though i do um again as, a, as an english teacher i do enjoy the the emphasis on looking at the actual words people say because Alex, um, Alexis mentioned back too, we tend to, you know, if you're reading someone that you already agree with, you kind of are, you know, you know the terms they're going to use. You're kind of halfway there already. And so they maybe don't have to be as precise. And so you might not always pay as close attention to the actual words they're using. And I push my students in class all the time. Anytime they want to make assumptions or, you know, they want to put something in the text that's not there. What I always say is, what are the words on the page? What do they say? And I think that's really valuable in something like this where there's like a heated argument to really pay close attention. I appreciate that Barr's paying close attention to the word choices on either side of this debate. I agree completely. Um, I w one thing I would like to say is I understand that this kind of might be a little bit of missing missing the mark as well. Um, Strand uses 17 different verses, passages, or chapters in the Bible. He cites 17 of, of those in, in the blog post that we're citing. Barr doesn't cite the Bible at all. In fact, the, the only time you 
she mentions the word Bible is when she lit, lists Beth Moore's most used words. Now, I agree that that's not the the you know the best way of determining whether what she's saying is biblically sound. But I thought about that, and that's the kind of thing that some people might, um, in the heat of the moment, or if if they haven't gotten any sort of theological training, might use to determine who's right. Is just who who goes to scripture most often, um, and I. I thought I had the time, and I did. I decided to take um, that same linguistic analysis tool that she uses in this in this passage or in her blog post, and I put in every verse or passage of scripture that Strawn references into that same tool, and I found out oh, what the word cloud was for that. And the top six words used in his uh, seventeen verses or passages are God, church. Husband's word, Christ, and love. So if we're going to use word clouds, that one makes him look a lot better. That's super interesting. Yeah. That is, I mean, that's that's a great idea. And I think that that's, that's really helpful. I think that illustrates some of what's going on here. And I think part of the tension that we feel, and we talked about how they're sort of doing different things, but Beth Moore is telling a story of her experience and it's been a really crummy experience and a really hard experience in a lot of ways. Owen Strand and the other people on sort of his side of this are talking about church polity and process and hierarchy and structure. And that is just never going to be or rarely going to be as compelling as a story. Um, It's not, you know, it doesn't hit you. It doesn't bring tears to your eyes. It doesn't stir up empathy. It's a different kind of conversation. But it is in the word. The word of God does talk about structure and order. He's not wrong when he says God is a God of order. Uh, And so I think part of that is... um, that that's just a, a conversation that doesn't get people excited uh, unless they're particularly passionate about those those specific areas. It reminds me in, in the field of law, which is where my training is, um, and the tension between sort of procedural law and substantive law, and that when it comes down to it, and there's a criminal case, and you hear the story of the victim, and you just you want you want the defendant to just be you can, everything bad you can think of you want to happen to them, and it's very frustrating if someone comes along and says, well, we need to make sure they have an attorney, and we need to make sure that they uh, have an opportunity to get discovery, and we have all these procedural protections. Um, that those can seem either boring or just frustrating hindrances. Uh, But they're super, super important protections. Uh, A ton of what we have in the Bill of Rights are are procedural protections, and they matter tremendously because they affect substance. Uh, And so I think it's a similar tension here where he's talking about order and headship and authority and all of these things that kind of feel dry and they don't resonate with us. Or if they resonate with us, it's in a negative way because we don't like authority. We're Americans. Literally in our history, we don't like authority. Um, and we're Baptists, so we also don't like authority. Um, and so so there's there's a resistance there. And we're sinners, so we don't like authority. Um, so, uh, you know, any feelings we have towards this are likely to be negative just based on our cultural framework that we're in. Um we're not primed to resonate with that message the way that we are with with uh, someone who's gone through hardship and with whom we empathize and, and feel a great dear deal of sorrow for them that they've had to go through that. So some of that is just, yeah, the 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 particular thing he's trying to sell doesn't have our emotions helping get him there, if that makes sense. I think it does. And I also think that that people who are already predisposed to agree with Strand can can kind of cast it can look through the other side of the lens, so to speak, and say, 
all that Beth Moore has to her name or all that uh, Miss Barr has to her name is a story. Even even Miss Barr, you know, starts her conversation sure. with a story about uh, how much she hated seeing Rachel Held Evans pass away, whereas um, Strand can go to the Bible and say, this is the, you know, millennia old word of God. And, and I know that you feel bad about it. And I know that you have your story, but this is the thing that will stand the test of time. And, and really it's, it's kind of a matter of which one of these things do you want to, to, to put more pride of place in? Which one of these things do you want to find more compelling? And I don't want to make it sound like that only people who are advocating for egalitarianism do so on the strength solely of stories. I know that there are people who have spent a lot of time in the word and have reached their conclusions based on that. And I particularly appreciate complementarian voices who acknowledge that there is a, there, that there is a good faith dispute about some of these issues. And and I know Jen Wilkin has talked about this um, explicitly in the podcast that we'll link to in the show notes. Um, But uh, I do, and that's one of the things I think is missing in in some of the the way that some of the complementarian writers talk about this is, um, they, they can make it sound like it is so straightforward that there is no room for discussion, and I, I can understand some of that, or they make it sound like it, and therefore it is easy, and they don't acknowledge the difficulties, the hard the hard part of of applying this. They don't. Um, they don't spend the time saying, you know what, you're right. A lot of terrible things have been done in the name of complementarianism, or you know what, a lot of horrible people um, have have used this to, you know, this this theological um, disguise to to mask their own misogyny or their own quest for power or or any number of things because that has obviously happened. Um, and I think it's unfortunate that we don't have more acknowledgement of the difficulty of applying this in reality. The challenges there inherent in this system, um, and then also the the good faith um, conclusions that that people who disagree with us have. Yeah, I was thinking that exact same thing when I was reviewing everything earlier today. Is that it's um, it very much feels like it's like it's like you said. Sometimes you just you know it it just needs to be said that yes, this was terrible, and then you can move on to you know you want to defend your theological position. But it's almost like in some of these cases, particularly with 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 Strand, is that he it's like he's seeing criticism of any criticism of kind of complementary culture or how it may have reacted to some of these really bad issues that have that have come to light in the last few years he's almost seeing any any criticism as synonymous with endorsing its opposite it's this kind of if you're not with us you're against us so instead of saying you know like you said alexis you know what you're right some terrible things have happened but theologically we still believe that this is right it almost instead comes across as well you're you know um you're just endorsing women in the pulpit like i mean you know or or whatever It, it kind of comes across as this um you're either you're either never going to criticize from within or you're just egalitarian or feminist or something like that and that's super frustrating um you know because throughout i mean you know to get not to get on my church history track but i've been studying for my class you know throughout church history there have been there's been this tension between do we reform from within or do we split up Right. That's always been there. And, you know, I think what Beth Moore seems to be wanting to do is to try to push for, you know, reform within and not not in the structure of our church, though. She's not saying women should be in the pulpit. I think she seems to want to try to reform attitudes, right, to correct attitudes of misogyny or to try to push for more 
empathy on the part of these male leaders, more respect for women. Um, and so she seems to have this idea or be pushing for a kind of reformation of attitudes or of hearts. Um, and, you know, and he's he, Strand and, and others like him seem to be seeing that as some desire to make a break or to embrace an opposite position or to become something else that she's not, if that makes sense, what I'm trying to say. It does. And she, I mean, she explicitly says, and I, I don't remember where, but she specifically says, basically, she knows people who are people who hold complementarian views because they see it in scripture and they hold it faithfully and they are living it well. And I don't remember how she phrases it exactly, but basically like good, good people on this side. But she also says she has encountered people who, for whom this was a hypocritical thing or a misogynistic thing or, or whatever. Uh, so she's able to say, basically there are people who've done this well, and people who've done this poorly. And it seems to me like you could respond to that and say, you know what? There are people who have done this poorly and they're wrong. And the people who've done it well are right and here's why. And you could do that. And it costs you nothing to say that people have held your position poorly in the past. Um, you can still argue that your position is a good one just because somebody who was a scoundrel um, held that position or claimed to hold that position and didn't even really hold it. Uh, because as we talked about before, uh, patriarchy or any kind of view that actually has a lower um, view of the value of women is not complementarianism by its definition. Um, so that that it would be a false claiming of that title. Um, so I think you could you could disavow with her, hey, that guy who said that to you or hey, the people who are doing that, they're wrong. You can join her in that rebuke and still hold to and, and support your own argument. And after 2016, my goodness, we know, we know there's hypocrisy and people who claim the name of Christ and are, are doing things that are inappropriate and, and, and maybe claiming that in a way that is motivated by political considerations more than scriptural ones. Uh, so we certainly know that that has happened. So my goodness, agree with the woman <laughs> and then continue to, to, to support your position, the position that you supposedly share. I mean, she's still within the church. And at this point, she's a big enough name. She could probably go it uh, and, and continue to do well um, outside of the SBC umbrella. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think absolutely she could. Well, let's go ahead. We, we've run a little long because we are having an awesome conversation, but let's go ahead and move on to our last section and um, do our passing on tonight. So um, as always, listeners, we're going to be recommending some ways to go further. Obviously, we've already, we're already going to be giving you lots of opportunities to do that because there are so many things that we're going to end up linking to just as ways of helping you understand the conversation so far. But we're also going to give a few recommendations at the end, like always. So Alexis, what are you recommending tonight? Oh, you would pick me first. Um, <laughs> Sorry. No, no, no. It's fine. It's fine. Um, a lot of what I, uh, I wanted to recommend, we've already sort of talked about. But I will say, um, as I've said before, I think Jen Wilkin has been a very valuable resource on a lot of this for me. And, and not just her, but also the way the Village Church has tried to think about this issue. That's the church where she works. Um, and so my recommendation is there is a position paper that the Village Church has generated articulating their view of the role of women. Um, and I think that it is biblically sound and it is more winsome and seems to have a, a genuine desire to involve women in their ministry. And that, in fact, is the the reason that they they started this process was because they were dissatisfied with the level of involvement of women in their church uh, in leadership positions and were concerned about that. So uh, I will I'll offer a link both to the shorter version that's like three pages and then there's like a 60 page version as well um, that articulates what their church thinks about this um, and how they got there, uh, including with some text. And I just, I thought it was a good example of trying to be thoughtful um, and of a church that from what I can tell genuinely is trying to 
once it has decided which which activities are open to women is actively seeking to consider women for all of those positions um, and and equip women for those positions and not just leave it to the women to find and uh, find those positions and equip themselves for it for them. Awesome. Thanks. Blake, how about you? Well, I hope you'll uh, forgive me for, as I have said before, you know, being a man and not being um, as close to this topic um, and having studied it as much as as other people have. I'm, I'm kind of going off on a different tangent. I have been a part recently of two different conversations with family members who are not part of the faith. And it's kind of sent me back into uh, the Internet and to YouTube and stuff, trying to put another coat of paint on my apologetic arguments. And I, you know, rediscovered a man named Dr. Frank Turek, who's an a, a apologist and, and Christian evangelist who has a great um, YouTube presence uh, on a channel called Cross Examined. And I recently just started his latest book called Stealing from God, where he argues that um, in many ways, science and logic and, and philosophy that atheists use to sort of champion their views um, really borrows and hinges on a theistic conception of the world. So I'm really getting into that. Um, I, again, apologies if it, <laughs> if it sounds completely out of left field, but that's what I'm uh, digging into these days and passing on for now. Stealing from God by Frank Turek. Thank you so much. Um, my uh, my recommendation tonight is maybe tangentially related to what we talked about. Um, so um, I'm linking an article that's actually, it's a transcribed interview at Christianity Today, and it's called um, How Prison Ministry Inspired an All-Female Audio Bible. And uh, it, it's an interview by Courtney Ellis with um, this woman, Ann White, who is a, a teacher and is also in the SBC. So that's that's the connection tonight's episode, I guess. But um, she is a woman who's worked with at-risk and abused women for years um, in prison ministry. And um, kind of uh, in the interview, they talk. she talks through the journey of wanting to find an, all, uh, an audio Bible read in all uh, female voices, in part because a lot of the women that um, she's been working with um, you know, if they've been victimized by a man, um, might feel um, uncomfortable with a male voice um, and just might feel more soothed. And it really, really interestingly, they mentioned in the interview some study that they did. Um, or no, it wasn't a study. She talks about um, talking with um, men who are being ministered to through prison ministry. And when they asked the male prisoners if they would like a male or a female voice for their audio Bible that they could listen to on an app, what they would prefer. And they also all preferred a female voice, which was fascinating to me. Um, so it's a really interesting read. And um, the the woman who's being interviewed, her name is Ann White, and she's the founder of an organization called Courage for Life. And in the interview, they actually talk a little bit too about um, her experience in ministry in, in the complementarian sphere. So I thought it was really interesting. And we'll link to all these, um, these three things we just mentioned, but also to all of these other things that we've kind of referred to throughout tonight's interview. I mean, throughout tonight's discussion. So, um, well, thank you guys for joining me here tonight um, for this conversation. And thank you listeners for listening to the Christian Feminist Podcast. We love to hear from you always. So if you have a topic or reading recommendations for a future show, or if you want to just connect with us um, and comment on something you heard tonight, you can do that at christianfeministpodcast at gmail.com. For show notes for this episode and other episodes, you can check out christianhumanist.org. The Christian Feminist Podcast is a member of the Christian Humanist Podcast Network, and Kristen Philippic is our publishing liaison. 
Be sure to tune in in two weeks for an episode on Christian evangelism and secular gaming. Um, Thanks again for joining us tonight. And as always, um, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, love.